Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are up to episode 231, and that just amazes me every time uh, we cross a new a new number, and 230 just seemed like so many, but it's been great because I have had the opportunity to interview entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, business leaders, people who work inside companies but have that intrapreneur feeling and people who want to go and have start their own thing or maybe they have a side hustle. I get the chance to talk to people who are doing really cool things. And today is no different. Today, we're going to talk to somebody who started off as a school teacher and then he moved to New York to be a te- uh, to be a, an actor. And he did all those jobs, he says, that actors did, which probably involves waiting tables. We didn't get that deep. But he wrote, <laughs> he, <laughs> he wrote jokes for Joan Rivers. He's done a whole bunch of things. But his life has taken a lot of turns throughout the years. And I thought it would be fun to talk to him a little bit about that journey that he's been on. But then also, he is a communications coach, and he works with some of the top CEOs around, helping them be better at being able, when they have to give a speech to their their employees or to their investors or to the public, he helps them get their message across better. And I do that. I work with people on how to speak better, and I thought it was such an important topic for the listeners of this show because whether you are a solopreneur or you're the CEO of a Fortune 100 company, how you communicate matters so much. So I am bringing to you today one of my favorite people, Mr. Jim Comer. Hey, Jim, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Uh, It's great to be here, and I love the fact that you mentioned that I was a waiter in New York. You're right about that. I was the worst waiter, maybe, in the history of New York. I think I got fired from five different jobs. So So tell us about it. I was terrible. I was just terrible at it, but that's what would-be actors do. I also painted apartments, drove cabs, and wrote jokes for Joan Rivers. I got paid seven bucks a line. And I think one time when we talked offline, you had also been on a couple of television game shows. Is that right? Oh, not a couple. I went. I was on seven. <laughs> well, you know, you and I are both alumni contestants from the twenty-five thousand dollar pyramid. I was a contestant oh. in nineteen eighty-seven, thirty years ago. I was on the twenty-five thousand oh dollar pyramid. Well, you, 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 it was gotten more expensive when you got on there. I was on in seventy-five. And it was $10,000. <laughs> and back then, when I was on, you were only on for one game. You weren't on for the whole show. So if you had a bad celebrity and you went to that celebrity and they were a bad game show player, you were you had one shot and you were out. Uh, Later, they changed that because the audiences hated it. Well, yeah, because in my day, you had two shots on the same day, and whoever won right, the most right. money came back the next day. And so I was on for five days. I actually went to the winner's circle seven times, and it was only the seventh time that I was able to beat it and win $10,000. And you add it with the stuff I won along the way. I won $20,000 of my week on that show. Well, Tom, I went to the winner's circle seven times, too, but I got five out of six three times, (laughs) and then the one... 
Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are up to episode 231, and that just amazes me every time uh, we cross a new, a new number, and 230 just seemed like so many, but it's been great because I have had the opportunity to interview entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, business leaders, people who work inside companies but have that intrapreneur feeling and people who want to go and have start their own thing or maybe they have a side hustle. I get the chance to talk to people who are doing really cool things. And today is no different. Today, we're going to talk to somebody who started off as a school teacher and then he moved to New York to be a te- uh, to be a, an actor. And he did all those jobs, he says, that actors did, which probably involves waiting tables. We didn't get that deep. But he wrote, <laughs> he, <laughs> he wrote jokes for Joan Rivers. He's done a whole bunch of things. But his life has taken a lot of turns throughout the years. And I thought it would be fun to talk to him a little bit about that journey that he's been on. But then also, he is a communications coach, and he works with some of the top CEOs around, helping them be better at being able, when they have to give a speech to their their employees or to their investors or to the public, he helps them get their message across better. And I do that. I work with people on how to speak better, and I thought it was such an important topic for the listeners of this show because whether you are a solopreneur or you're the CEO of a Fortune 100 company, how you communicate matters so much. So I am bringing to you today one of my favorite people, Mr. Jim Comer. Hey, Jim, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Uh, it's great to be here, and I love the fact that you mentioned that I was a waiter in New York. You're right about that. I was the worst waiter, maybe, in the history of New York. I think I got fired from five different jobs. So, so tell really, us about I, really, I was terrible. I was just terrible at it, but that's what would-be actors do. I also painted apartments, I drove cabs, and wrote jokes for Joan Rivers. So I got paid seven bucks a line. And I think one time when we talked offline, you had also been on a couple of television game shows. Is that right? Oh, not a couple. I was was on seven. (laughs) Well, you know, you and I are both alumni contestants from the $25,000 pyramid. I was a contestant in 1987. 30 years ago, I was on the $25,000 pyramid. Well, it was gotten more expensive when you got on there. I was on in 75 and it was $10,000. <laughs> and back then, the, when I was on, you were only on for one game. You weren't on for the whole show. So if you had a bad celebrity and you went to that celebrity and they were a bad game show player, you were you had one shot and you were out. Uh, Later, they changed that because the audiences hated it. Well, yeah, because in my day, you had two shots on the same day and whoever won right, the most right. money came back the next day. And so I was on for five days. I actually went to the winner's circle seven times and it was only the seventh time that I was able to beat it and win $10,000. And you add it with the stuff I won along the way. I won $20,000 of my week on that show. Well, Tom, I went to the winner's circle seven times, too, but I got five out of six three times. <laughs> and then the one time I was giving clues, I used a one-syllable preposition, and I lost the $10,000 
because I used the preposition, which was not allowed. Uh. But I ended up with, I say, I ended up with $3,300. By today's terms, that's probably, what, 15000 Yeah, it wouldn't have been Maybe bad. More. Yeah, I won 20000 I won 20000 a trip for two to Brazil, a sailboat, and a stereo. And then they gave me, like, a whole bunch of cough syrup and other parting gifts. So it was a, it was a good week. Well, I think it was a very good week. I was so disappointed at not winning the 10000 It took me until the show actually aired two or three months later, and I had everybody over to look at it. It was only then that I realized I'd done okay. That's how disappointed I was. <laughs> hey, in the 1970s, 3000 bucks that's a big deal, man. Oh, well, I owed 3000 So by the time I paid my debts, I had 300 for play money. So, so you, so you have literally then had quite the journey as an entrepreneur, trying to to support yourself and create your way in this in this crazy world of being in business. So, so tell us a little bit about yeah, what really led did. you. I even I even got so desperate at one point that I I had a wonderful friend who was a brilliant actress, and we put together a uh, a comedy team, and we did sketches and uh, kind of like the stuff that you see on TV today, some of these sketch comedy shows. And we got, actually, we won a contest and went to the Improv, which is the top comedy club in New York. And uh, we got on, we, we, we played the 3 a.m. circuit to about four drunks, but we, we got a manager. And the manager sent our material to Lauren Michaels the summer he was putting together Saturday Night Live. Wow. Of course, we didn't know that I was going to be this iconic show. And he brought us into his office and he told us that we had a job writing on that show. Wow. And we believed it. Wow. And, you know, we left there thinking we were going to be TV writers <laughs> and we never heard from him again. Oh, no. We and then a whole bunch of people from Canada. And then the show launched like a couple of months later. Oh, yes, it launched. That was in. We met him in his office at 30 Rock in July. We were supposed to start rehearsing in August, and we never heard. Our, our, our agent, our manager called, and, and we just never heard. And then the show came on. It was this instant, iconic hit. And we, it was, the, it was probably the biggest disappointment in my entire business career. Well, I'll tell you, maybe Lauren Michaels will listen to cool things entrepreneurs do, and he'll give you another shot. He'll bring you back. Oh, I like the sound of that, Tom. <laughs> Let's make sure he hears this. So, so where did you go from there? You tried to be an actor in New York, and then what happened? Well, uh, well, what happened then was I did. You know, I was so desperate to do that. I took it. You're not going to believe this. I, I had to take a break after that losing the ten thousand dollar pyramid. And I actually took the only job I could find in the New York Times. I took a job writing for the Girl Scouts. And I got to tell you, I was there for a year, and I do not remember one thing I did except go to a conference and go to a convention. <laughs> and then I saw this ad in the paper for, about, uh, for a non-equity, non-union uh, summer stock, and they were doing all these shows that I wanted to be in. So I quit my job and went to this terrible theater and I lasted about a week. It was just so awful. I couldn't stand it. Came back. I'd sublet my apartment and I stayed on friends' couches all summer long and wrote a book called How to Survive a Roommate, which five years later got published and got me on the Today Show. Oh, very so nice. So it was a real vagabond life. <laughs> so you ended up in L.A. working in the TV business for a while. and then Oh, no, no. I, oh. Had, a, I had a New York experience first. I uh, finally, in in the end of 77, I had actually done a good summer stock show down in South Carolina that I loved. And I was a kind of a star for six weeks in South Carolina. 
And when I got on that plane to go back to a dark apartment, no job, no unemployment, I um, suddenly realized it was over. And when I got home, I called my entire address book and said, I want a real job. I'm looking for a real job using my writing skills. Because that time I'd had articles published in the New York Post, New York Times, Washington Post. And I mean, I had I had a portfolio. So um, I called everybody I knew and one person believed me that I really wanted a job. And they got me an interview at Avon Products, which was right there on Fifth Avenue, the world headquarters. They were looking for a wacky idea person. And somehow she thought of me. <laughs> Here's the killer. You're going to love this. I never had a corporate job. I go in for my big interview. I own one suit, a blue velvet Pierre Cardin number. And that's what I wore to my interview. And thank goodness she didn't care about the suit. She liked the writing. She kept all my writing. And a week later, the woman called me and offered me the job. That's and it awesome. changed my life. I went from almost no money to 27000 a year, which was in 1978 a lot of money. Awesome. So then and you- about three years later, that job, which was writing sales meetings for the 500,000 Avon representatives, it led to my chance to write a speech for the president uh, of the company, the CEO, and uh, the first speech I'd ever written, and it, he loved it, and then I heard him rehearse it. He was just unbelievably bad. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I can't let this man ruin my speech, my great So I went up to this man who I barely knew, and I said, Mr. Casey, um, I think if we rehearsed this, you'd be even better. (laughs) And he said, well, you know, no one's ever asked me to rehearse. He said, I think it's a good idea. And so we rehearsed three times, and he got really better. And everybody everybody noticed it. And suddenly, all the other executives wanted me to rehearse with them, and that's how I became a speech coach. All that acting, all those acting classes that for all those years finally paid off. <laughs> so then you ended up in Los Angeles, and I know that at some point your life sort of turned around because of some personal stuff. So what happened next? Yeah, well, I went to Los Angeles, and, and I thought I was going to be a TV writer. I hadn't given that up yet, but had a couple of close calls. But what happened was my, my reputation from New York went along with me, and all of a sudden I began getting all these opportunities to write speeches and coach speakers and I ended up doing uh, uh, having a uh, six-year uh, uh, relationship with the Shackley Company where I did just about all of their big programs and national conferences, and I still did some work for Avon. So I was, I was very lucky. I had like seven or eight great years in uh, L.A., and uh, then finally, just as I had the house on the hill and I thought everything was going great, I got a phone call telling me that my uh, – my father had just had a stroke, and my mother had early Alzheimer's, and um, the world changed. I was an only child, so I was I was on a plane in a couple of hours, and you know a lot about that. You you had a father who was out in California living on his own, so you know what that's like. Uh, only you had brothers. I was I was doing this pretty much on my own, and I have I had to basically move back to Texas, um, where I hadn't been in thirty years and uh, take care of my folks. And that lasted for 13 years. 
And I had no idea that I was going to become a specialist in caregiving. So that's a, a, an interesting thing because oftentimes we don't think as entrepreneurs, especially if we're you know running our own business or have sort of our, our own path, lots of times we don't think of the fact that we could get derailed by things we just don't see coming down the road. So what Believe was me, I did not see that one at all. <laughs> so so what really quick sort of how did that change your life? Well, you know, the, here's the good part of it. I'd spent all those years trying to be rich and famous, trying to make it, trying to be somebody. And, you know, I was really totally self-focused. And suddenly, I had to put my parents first. And I had to be, I had to learn a new word. It was called unselfish. And it was really kind of new in my vocabulary. And, um, and I had to do all these things that I'd never done before. I had to get good with wheelchairs. I had to I had to take them all over the place. I had to be a servant as opposed to one being served. And um, and I got to know my parents on a on a whole new basis. So it it really had many many wonderful things about it. As tough as it was many times, there was a lot of humor. There was a lot of closeness, and I knew I was doing what I needed to be doing. There wasn't anybody else to do it. And, you know, I just couldn't not show up. I needed to show up for my parents. And that made me, made me grow up in many ways. And you actually now speak on that topic and you've written a book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened about, you know, about six or about six or seven years into the process, the early two thousand. I moved here in 96. We had, we had, Four and a half after Dad finally had a recovery, which took about six months. He had a complete recovery. They were in an independent living, and that was easy from compared to what was coming, because independent living is you know people are in pretty good shape. And I got comfortable, and then all of a sudden they both broke hips within seven months of each other. And so we skipped assisted living and ended up in skilled nursing. And my mother was in the nursing home for nine years. My dad was there for five years, mm. and that is a much that that's a much difficult, uh, much more difficult situation. So, I mean, after all that we'd gone through for about seven or eight years, I realized I had some really valuable material that could help other people, and and I could use my own story with a lot of humor and a lot of the insights I gained and the practical knowledge. So, I wrote a book called Parenting Your Parents. And I self-published it in uh, 2004, and it sold out. And then I got, I was lucky enough to get a national publisher. We changed the name to When Roles Reverse, because there were five books named Parenting Your Parents. <laughs> so it was called When Roles Reverse, and then Parenting Your Parents was the subtitle. And that was published nationally, and it sold well, and it's still selling. And um, what that did was to lead me to speaking on the subject of caregiving. Uh, I have a speech called The Joys and Jolts of Caregiving, which I've given in about 25 states. And um, I love giving it because when it's over, people line up and come talk to me and share their stories. And I mean, I realize that it's making a difference. Them hearing my story helps them uh, helps them feel better about what they're doing. And, and and it brings laughter and it brings some tears sometimes, but it gives them some encouragement and some practical tips. And that just feels wonderful. 
Right. Well, and that's a topic that, you know, we, we don't necessarily think of, but, you know, it's coming down the pipe for a lot of people. And a, a lot of the people who listen to the show are, are maybe younger than, than I am. Maybe they're in their 30s and 40s and they haven't thought about what lies ahead. But, you know, we were very fortunate in my family. My, my dad lived to be 99, but until he was 94, he lived on his own with very little problem. I mean, nobody lived in the same city where he was and he had no problems. And all of a sudden, when he was 94, we started to see the writing on the wall and my older brothers sort of stepped in and and we you know moved him to live near one of them and and all that and we did read your book I got a copy of your book and gave it to my brothers and uh, and we did look at that but we actually got very lucky we never had that emergency until oh, that's he, wonderful until he that's was wonderful. in and until course, he was in Tom care. you gave me a great line in my book I'll never forget it because you said that back when your dad was living on his own uh, in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, he was in L.A. And the, I have two brothers in uh-huh. the Bay Area, one in New York, and I'm in Texas. Yeah, and what I remember is that you made sure that he had a subscription to the L.A. Times, and you you asked all the neighbors or several of the neighbors to make sure every day that that paper had been picked up. And if for some reason the paper was out there, they should knock on the door and make sure he was okay. <laughs> yeah, that was I, that a brilliant was, idea. I wish I could take that idea. It was my brother's idea, and my dad didn't want to subscribe to the LA Times because he was so busy. He was always out golfing and bowling, and he had five girlfriends, and he didn't want to read the oh, paper. Oh, my goodness. But we said, your job isn't to read the paper. Your job is to get the paper inside and put it in the recycling. That's, it. That's all he had to do. And only one time— I love it. Only one time did he ever forget— and the neighbors were all there by like noon trying to figure out what happened. And here he comes driving in the driveway going, what's everybody doing? <laughs> that's, that's just such a great story. And it, boy, doesn't that, those genetics must make you feel very good. Well, my mom died at 58. So my, my job is if, ah, we, <laughs> if we can split the difference, I still get to about 80. So it's not so bad. Yeah. Well, my, well, my mom lived to be 97 and dad lived to be within two months of 96. So I, I've got good, I've got good genes, but uh, <laughs> the last few years of their lives were, you know, uh, tough. But up until then, pretty good. So, what have you really loved about the life of being an entrepreneur? I mean, you've really created your own path from the beginning. What have you, what have you loved about that? Well, what I've, the, the thing I like best about uh, well, uh, being an entrepreneur is that 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 you can you can really do a lot of different things. I mean, I coach. I, I speak, I write, I ghostwrite, and I do workshops. And I'm adding a, a coaching business to that over the internet starting this year. So you can, you, can content, you can pick and choose the kinds of things you want to do. And if something isn't working, you can change it. In fact, this morning, I met with someone that I've been editing. I've been editing a, a magazine for the Wesleyan Homes where my parents uh, live. And I, it was time for me to end that. So I, I met with the, the woman who runs that and we had a lovely breakfast. And I just explained to her that I was going to be going in some different ways and I would do one more issue and then that was going to be it. So the point is I'm not stuck in something if I don't want to do it anymore. So what advice and do that you have? feels good. So what advice do you have for someone who might be listening who thinks, I kind of want to create my own path. I want to be able to, to sort of bounce from here to there and, and live a little bit more exciting life of, of finding my own way in the world. What advice would you have for somebody on, on how to go about doing this? Well, first of all, you have got to absolutely love what you're doing. 
because there are going to be lots of ups and downs as an entrepreneur. I mean, you you're it. You're 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 you are the business at least until you can grow and maybe bring someone in later on and and build a staff. But for a good while, you're going to be it, and you're going to have to find ways to supplement the areas where you're not good and concentrate on the areas you are good. And that is that's our that's not something that comes easily to everyone. So to get you through that. It's so important that you're very clear about what you want to do. What are your strengths? What are the things that give you great joy? And what are the things you want to contribute to the world? And if you know those, and those are so important to you, then, then you might have a really good chance of being a successful entrepreneur. But if you're just doing it because you don't want a boss, <laughs> or because you, you think you're going to make a lot of money that way, or... It looks glamorous. Well, that's that's not the way because it's it's the moments of glamour are they're there, but they're they're I would say few and far between. They're not all. They, you know, but a lot of it is just basic work. I've spent the afternoon today making phone calls, marketing phone calls for three hours. Now I had a good time doing it today, but it's not glamorous. Right. I think that's yeah. one of the I things mean, people forget is that you got to do all the heavy lifting. You got to do the heavy lifting, and that has really been hard. I'll be, I'm going to be real honest here. When I was in LA, I was so lucky because Avon, that I'd worked with in New York, they kept using me because they had a big center in in LA. They kept me busy. I still did some work back in New York. I had that going for me, and then I got lucky because I got into Shackley through a through an Avon connection that worked there, and I had six years where they just took. They took a, a big chunk of my time, so I really didn't have to market when I was in LA. So, Jim, you bring I, up a, I had you br- work coming to me. You bring up and a really. Then when I moved to Austin. Well, you bring yeah, up a really I, interesting point, and that is, you got into Shackley through a, a contact from Avon. How important, if you're going to be a solopreneur and piece together your own life, how important is your network? Oh, network is just, uh, it, you, I can't even begin to tell you how important it is. And that was one of the hard parts for me when I had to suddenly come to Texas, where I had absolutely no experience in business, no network. I mean, I had, and of course, I had a pretty full plate taking care of my parents. I had to start from scratch and build a network. Plus, I had to begin to learn how to sell. I hadn't really had to sell until I moved here. And that has been the biggest challenge of my career. And I'm still working on getting better at it. (laughs) I had a great day today. You know, I had a great day selling today. And, uh, but you know, it's been the biggest challenge for me. So since your days at Avon, you have been a speechwriter. Now, how important is giving a good speech and having those communication skills? How important is that for entrepreneurs? Well, first of all, an entrepreneur, depending on what they do, most likely they're going to have to raise money. They're going to need to go to venture capitalists. They're going to need to they need to going to need to pitch their product to people who might fund them. And so, and often in these pitches, you get five or ten minutes to a group of potential investors, and in those five or ten minutes, you have got to explain what your product is why it's special, why it's going to work, and why they should invest money in it. 
and how they're going to make money in it. You got to get some major things across in five or 10 minutes. So if you don't have that pitch really honed and really professional and really delivered with lots of enthusiasm and, and, uh, and, and a real feeling that you have confidence in it, they're not going to invest in you. And no matter how good you are, often the people get the, that get the investments may, may not have the best product. They may have the best pitch. So how do and you, you see that? in you see that in political life, you, the pitch is often more important than the actuality. So how does an entrepreneur or any business person, how does someone fine tune their communication skills? How do they learn to be a better speaker? Can, can people learn? Well, of course, absolutely people can learn. Now, there are people that are gifted that, you know, that just, you know, they just have that special thing, that special timing, like a Ronald Reagan or a Bill Clinton or a Governor Ann Richards. They just have it. But that's rare. And most people can get it if they'll do something like go to Toastmasters. You and I are both alumni of Toastmasters, and we it's helped us both tremendously, wouldn't you say? Oh, I mean, absolutely. It's one of the smartest things I ever did when I was 25 years old is I joined a Toastmasters club and stayed active for a decade, not knowing I would become a professional speaker. But I never would have been able to have been so comfortable because I think and when I work with people, one of the things I tell them is this is a learned skill. You can't expect your first speech is going to be your best speech. And I read one time oh. I read one time in Speaker Magazine, which I make the joke is proof there's a magazine for everybody. Uh, I, read right. one, I read one time <laughs> an, an interview of a lady named Roxanne Emmerich, and she said uh -huh. that you have to give 300 professional-level speeches. And I think the way she described a professional-level speech, and this was a decade ago, so I'm doing this from my, my weakening memory, but she described it as more than 25 people, and they invited you to be there. This wasn't the sales manager running his own sales meeting. This was you were invited as the special speaker. She said you didn't even have to necessarily be paid, but you were invited in as the expert. She said after 300, you can handle anything that comes your way. But before that, you still well, I have think a lot that's a, I think that's really a, a smart way of looking at it. It was like the uh, – what, what was the thing that uh, um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell said? Uh, he said that you needed 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. Like that's how many hours Bill Gates had before he became the Bill Gates we know. He'd had 10 hours, 10,000 hours of working with computers. Yep. And the Beatles spent like four or five years in Hamburg doing four shows a night in this dive, and then they went back to England and became stars. But they had put in the time. And I agree there's with that. No, there's absolutely no, what, nothing can take the place of hours spent doing your craft, because that's how you hone it. Well, and I agree. Now that I've done 600-plus professional-level speeches, I can handle all kinds of things. I was speaking at the Stephen F. Austin Hotel in downtown Austin about three years ago, and the ballroom, it's an old hotel, and, and the ballroom has a row of windows, and I wasn't using PowerPoint. I was doing about an hour-long presentation to a bunch of realtors, and the power in downtown Austin went out for some reason. Somebody hit a power line or something, right. and so the room went dark, but we had windows. It wasn't dark, so I kept going, and I was in the middle of a story when it happened, so I really didn't draw attention to it. We all knew the power had gone out. I just kept going. 
And as I was kind of wrapping up my hour-long speech, it had been maybe 20, 30 minutes since we'd lost power, you could feel the buzz of the hotel. It just started to shake, and, and you could feel the power coming back in as the air conditioner and the lights came up. And I stopped. I was uh-huh. kind of at a perfect spot. I stopped, and I looked at the audience, and I said, you know, a great speaker illuminates his audience. And ah, great line. And, and the whole room. That's a great line. The whole room. You got a terrific oh, laugh. Oh, my God. It was the biggest laugh I may have ever gotten. And they all were laughing. And afterwards, a guy came up to me and he said, do you have a line? Do you have a bit for everything that could go wrong? And I didn't understand what he was asking. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, that line, that was hysterical. He goes, did you have that like in a file in your brain for if the power ever goes out, when it comes back, you say, and I'm like, oh my God, no. I mean, you can't plan for what is really going to, you could never plan for everything that's going to happen. What that's called is being quick and fast and talented. And experienced. I have a term for that. I've used this for like 25 years. I made it up back in the eighties or I think in the eighties in LA. I, when I was first doing workshops, I talked about A-T-O, acknowledge the obvious. Whatever happens that's unusual that is going to take the audience's attention, you've got to acknowledge it or else they think that you're on another planet. <laughs> you've got to have some fun with it. And if you do that, the audience is going to like it. They're going to think you're sharp. And you don't, even, you don't even have to have a brilliant remark like yours as long as you come up with something that lets them know that you know. So you're all in the boat together. Well, and it definitely was an experience thing. If that had been my 20th speech, I would have been like, oh, now the power is on. And, you know, it would have been like very robotic and and mapped out. And I think that you have to hone the craft. And that's why, you know, your comment about Toastmasters is so great because it gives you a chance, a chance to do that. Besides Toastmasters, what's one more tip you would give uh, a business person? Uh, Hire a coach. If you've got a big speech coming and it's really important to you, and you really want it to be fantastic, hire a speech coach uh, who will we'll come in and it goes, you know, I know what I do when, I, when I'm hired for people. Uh, like last year, I helped someone do the UT commencement speech. And it was really important to him because he graduated from UT. So we worked real hard on both the content and then the delivery. And we must have rehearsed that 10 different times on 10 different days. And he came in there and he knocked it out of the park. And this year, the same thing happened with someone who was being admitted to the uh, Macomb School of Business Hall of Fame. He had five minutes, but he wanted that five minutes to be brilliant and, and be himself. So we worked really hard on content. And then we worked hard on taking someone who was very small, soft spoken and bringing him up to a performance level. And again, it was a big hit. And that's one but of my. That was because they were willing to put the time into it. And that's one of my favorite things that I get the chance to do as well is when I get to work with somebody and you can see the difference. It's one of the most rewarding things. Oh, my things. God. It's one of the most rewarding things yeah, you can do. Yeah, I agree with you. You walk away feeling, oh, wow. Look what we did together. Yeah, I have a client who this year I'm going to go and spend the day with their team in Washington, D.C., and the executive director of the organization has to give a very important speech at their conference, and we're going to spend part of the day that I'm there really crafting that message, and it's probably the thing I look forward to kind of the most in the next three months. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I know she's oh. really going to be able to do that. So I, I understand where you're coming from. Now, if people are looking to hire a coach and they want to find Jim Comer, how do they find you? 
Well, they can do. They can find me on my website. They can do a Google search for me. My website will come up. They can go to the NSA National Speakers Association. I'm I'm on that website, the Metropolitan Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. They can find me. I'm there. Awesome. So, Jim, I've got a couple of more questions for you before I let you go. But first, sure, sure. But, but first, I have to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing cool people like Jim Comer. If you want to start a podcast, and I know a lot of you do... Go over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the exclusive offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Jim, I call my show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What is the coolest thing you're doing right now with your business? Uh, the, The coolest thing I'm doing right now with my business is focusing. I'm getting rid of things that are peripheral to my business, like I mentioned that the magazine. I'm cutting out things that are not right to the heart of what I want to do. I want to speak a lot more. I want to do a lot of presentation skills workshops. Those are the two things that I love the most. And I'm trying to really focus on those. And then I want to do the last thing I want to do is to have a presence online so I can start an online coaching uh, system that will allow people to to access me, whether it's with a group or it's a one-on-one on the phone or whether it's in person. And that's a whole new level that I haven't done yet. So I'm really excited about the coaching. No, that's going to be awesome. And you're such a good coach that if anybody's listening, you should really find out more about what he's doing and what he offers because he really does well, I have... I appreciate that. Well, you've got the patience of Job and you have you know the years of experience that really pay off because I think there's a lot of people out there who forget that you know we think we live in this world where we're focused on the millennials and you know they're all great and they're doing amazing things, but there's something to be said about having you know a couple of gray hairs on your head and having been down. I have road. more than a couple, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got the cough that is the cough that is enveloping Austin. I've got, but it's going to go away soon. Yeah, we had a, we had you a know, bad allergy things, season. A big pardon? We had a bad allergy season. Oh, it's been the worst ever. I mean, let me add one more thing. I would say, as a as a coach, whether I'm one on one or whether I'm working with a group, the thing that I try to always do that I think makes a big difference. I try I try to make a safe place for everybody. I want everybody to know that no matter what happens, it's okay. And by doing, and I get excited, and I run around the room, and I, and I put my glasses down, and I sometimes can't find them. They have to, I have the class find them. I want to demonstrate to them: you don't have to be perfect. There's not. It's more about being real and authentic, and warm and likable, all those kinds of things. So that if they can get that feeling of safety, then they're much more likely to be real and authentic and vulnerable and all the things I'm hoping that will happen when they get up to do their presentations. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, so the last question for you, and I love to ask people this, and and sometimes it catches them off guard, but I, I love this. And that is, 
you know, I think great entrepreneurs, we want to do more than make money. I think people who are great entrepreneurs, I think, I think they're observers. And I think that when I ask people this question, I get some really great answers and some really good insight. And that is not you and your company, but who's someone else who you see out there who has a business, who's doing something. And some people say they're local dry cleaner and some people say Elon Musk. Who is somebody who you admire that you think, wow, they're doing cool stuff? Right now, you're not talking just about speakers, right? No, just anybody you admire. Uh, I have a friend whose uh, name is Roy James. And when I first moved to Austin, uh, I met Roy through mutual friends. He was working in Dell, uh, at Dell, and he was, I'm not even sure what he was doing there, but he was a techie. And he painted for on the side. He'd never taken lessons. He was just a a natural painter, and he painted for his own pleasure. And one day he took in uh, one of his pieces of art to a, a framer uh, that was also a gallery, and they were so blown away by what they saw, they did not want to let him out of the building. They wanted to sell his painting, and he just wanted to frame it for himself. And all of a sudden, he realized what he had, and it began to paint, and within a year, they did a show of his paintings, and it sold really well. And Roy is now, almost 19 years later, charging any place from 5000 to $25,000 for his painting. And I've seen him go through all different levels and stages, kind of like Picasso did. He started out doing landscapes. Then he went into all sorts of abstract things. Then he's done into found objects. He keeps growing. He's an artist, and he's managed to make a living doing what he loves and continuing to grow and evolve and uh, and still meet the market's needs. I think he's one of the great success stories that I've seen. Well, and you know what's so cool about that is he's doing what he loves, he's making money, and he's continuing to grow and evolve. I think that's the Absolutely. message. I think that's the message that we want to leave this podcast with for everybody. I mean, we talked a lot about just being a better communicator as an entrepreneur <laughs> or an executive. And I think that if you can enjoy it, if you can, you know, make a living doing what you're doing and make your speech serve whatever it is you have to do is in that executive role, whether it's raising money or speaking to the troops or talking to investors. And then uh-huh. if you can continue to get better, and I think that's what this whole episode's been all about. Well, yeah, getting better is the whole deal. And, and that's getting better not only in your craft, but you also have to get better in your business part of your life, which is what I'm working on right now. That's awesome. Well, Jim, thank you so much for for well, being I've, a guest. I've loved doing it, Tom. It was great talking to you, and I love the fact that we were on the on the pyramid. At the, you know, we both did the pyramid, and we both been to the pyramid seven times. What are the chances of that? Well, and I lived in the day of videotape, and so I actually have a tape of mine. I'll show it to you sometime. Oh, gosh. I, I was about 10 years too early for that. Yep. I, well, I just barely made it. It was in the mid-'80s, but I got in there with a, oh. a VHS tape, and I recorded it when it aired. So I can show you sometime. So I actually, oh, I'd love to see it. I actually That's have great. A, I, I actually have a speech called Everything I Need to Know I Learned on a Television Game Show, and I actually can show the clip as part of that. Oh, that's great. I would, I would love to be able to do that, <laughs> especially because I was on with Anson Williams, who is not the brightest bulb on the planet. <laughs> and after I won with Lucy, uh, Lucy Arnaz, who was great, I had to go to Anson, who had lost nine straight games. 
And during the <laughs> commercial break, I reached across that desk and I said, Anthony, you have got to go faster. You have got to speed up or else I'm going to lose. I mean, I, I mean, I went crazy during the commercial break. I scared him so badly. <laughs> he thought I was going to come across. He really did think from the look on his face, I was going to come across the desk and strangle him. And I got to tell you, he sped up and that was the only game he won all day. So wasn't Anson Williams potsy on Happy Days? That's right. And he should have stayed there because he was not a bright guy. Oh, could you imagine your chance to win $10,000 and you're paired up with potsy? That is right. That's right. (laughs) And I was not going to lose. And it was the last game of the day. So when I came back two weeks later, I had two very good contestants. I had Adrian Barbeau from Maud and... uh, McLean Stevenson from MASH. They were both great. Awesome. So it didn't matter who you had. Well, I'll tell you that uh, I, w- I finally won the pyramid with Marky Post from Night Court. And uh, some, ah. pe- some people don't remember who Marky Post was, but in 1987, she was one of the most beautiful women on TV, and I was a college student. Couldn't have been paired up with anybody better. Right, right. <laughs> well, I love the fact that we both had that experience. That's right. Hey, Jim, what is your website? How can people find you? They can find me at Comer, C-O-M-E-R, communications, with an S, all one word, comercommunications.com. That is awesome. Well, again, thank you for being a guest on the show, and thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. If this was your first show, I hope you'll come back again, because we're going to be back in a couple of days with another interview with somebody just as cool as Jim Comer. But in the meantime, I challenge you to go out there and have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.